It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to Locked On Red Sox on the Locked On Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. As always, I'm your host, Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game, and today is part three of my interview with Nick Francona, former MLB executive and son of former Red Sox manager Terry Francona. amazing about that and so frustrating on the baseball side is so much of what they're doing is just getting out of the way like when you see with with the nba like it, it, like players drive the culture and drive the personality and and there are are fans that connect with players that might not even be in their their local market because you don't have this like suppression coming from the league level it's not about Adam Silver does a good job by not being like in everybody's shit and just like allowing, allowing things to flow. And, and the more people are talking about uh, like Jason Tatum and not Adam Silver, like that's a good thing. And in baseball, like we're talking about Rob Manfred a lot more than we're talking about Mike Trout or Ruthie Betts. Exactly. And I agree with you that, you know, like MLB is its own worst enemy right now because they're not thinking. And the thing that is so crazy to me is that it seems so obvious the ways that they could be growing the game and they would actually benefit MLB immensely in the short term and the long term. And they're just not doing them. And the prime example of that is the fact that families can't afford to go to the ballpark. There are 162 games in the regular season. So approximately 81 of them are at home. And I have people telling me on Twitter all the time that they can't even afford to go to one game at Fenway with their families. And so the number of people that can't afford to go to multiple games is probably exponentially larger. And the thing with baseball is that it's hard to understand baseball's appeal if you don't grow up going to a ballpark. Because yeah. there is something so like I, I and I, I've been to football games, I've been to basketball games, I go to Celtics games all the time, and I love them. But walking into an arena like TD is completely different than walking into Fenway, being a little girl walking up the ramp to see the blue sky and the green monster and the red seat and the fans and batting practice, all of that. I still feel that way every single time I go to Fenway. But that's because it's a feeling that I felt that was magical to me as a very small child. And if I didn't have that, I don't know if I would be the person that I am today. I don't know if I would be working in baseball. And that's a thing that kids are missing out on because their families are being priced out of the ballpark. And if you don't experience those things from a young age, you don't see what is so special about the game of baseball. You don't see the value in baseball. And if you don't see that, then you definitely aren't going to be spending money going to games, buying, you know, fan apparel, buying food, just going to a ballpark, you're not going to think that that's something that you should do with your disposable income. And then you grow up and you become a parent. And because you don't value it, you're definitely not going to take your kids and then your kids won't see the value in it. And that's how baseball will die. The way you're describing it is, in, and I, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think there's a lot of similarities in that when, when you look at like kind of how baseball's passed down from generation to generation and how people become fans. I think it's a lot 
more more of a parallel to to almost like re like religion than it is uh, like a a regular another kind of consumer business, and it's uh, I, I think that like that that connectivity from from generation to generation like they they need to spend a little more time thinking about like like what are those touch points and like what is that emotional connection that's going to be like like sticky and have people go from like like what you mentioned is really powerful because like you might like you might have that experience and then maybe you go live overseas for four or five years you like that doesn't mean you're going to be like you might not go to a ballpark but that doesn't go away you're still going to be a baseball fan and then you might take your kids to have that same experience and all of a sudden there you have three generations of, of baseball fans that and you, you pass that down without a significant interruption and when you when you price people out out so they're not having this this in-person experience at stadiums in at major league stadiums and and i would i would point out that, that one of the really crazy developments is that that even extends to spring training now where you've seen a, a skyrocketing in the prices there as well which is used to never be the case i and paid then you 60 dollars for a spring training game between the padres and the wow. giants last year and i was like That's i don't crazy. even like pa i was like i can't believe i'm paying 60 dollars to watch pablo sandoval and manny machado when i don't like <laughs> either of them and that's insane. but like i had friends that were going and it was it was what it was but <laughs> like that that's was a wild. spring training game yeah. in arizona that's insane i mean think about that like that's the kind of thing you'd almost like want to like be close to giving away or even willing to like lose money on in the short term just because like what is the like what is the value of that experience of having somebody become a baseball fan and like in the long run, they're going to make a lot more money off of that than when when you look at like pulling away from a lot of these minor league towns and and pricing people out of ballparks, and then on top of that, making it so like if you're a kid growing up in Los Angeles and you can't afford to go to a game and then you can't watch the Dodgers on TV, like the Dodgers are making plenty of money right now. Like, are those people going to have that same emotional connection like 20 years from now when they're when they're passing it on to their kids? Like. Some of them will, some, but a whole hell of a lot of them are not going to. And that, that's, that should be very concerning. Well, yeah. And that's the other thing is like, you can't price people out of the ballpark and then also black them out of the games and then wonder where the fans are. Well, you sent all of us away. So where the hell do you think we are? We're at basketball games. Like yeah. <laughs> you can't do both. You shouldn't do either, but you definitely can't do both. And I mean, like you said about religion and moving overseas, it's funny because my dad's actually a rabbi. And mm -hmm. the two things that I grew up doing with him were, you know, we went to synagogue every Saturday and he's the one that taught me about baseball. And we would play Stratomatic after synagogue on Saturday afternoons. And he had like a thousand baseball cards. He had like every decade's worth of like the greatest MLB players. He had the Negro leagues, he had everything. And I would just stare at all of these cards and I would ask him questions and he would tell me stories. He would tell me about him and his dad going to see Carl Yastrzemski have a multi-homer world series game when he was a kid. He had all these great stories, his dad and, and his dad's older brother, who is now 101 years old, used to go watch Babe Ruth play when he was a player manager with the Boston Braves at the end of his career 
And these are the stories that made me fall in love with baseball. They're the reason that I did a book report on Jackie Robinson as a kid and then asked my parents to take me to Ebbets Field and then cried when they told me that Ebbets Field was Mm -hmm. torn down. And when I moved to Israel in college, it was 2013 and I stayed up. The games would start after midnight and they would go till the sun came up. And I watched Koji Uihara make that final out as the sun was coming up in my apartment in Tel Aviv. And I screamed so loud, I woke up the entire apartment. (laughs) But I was watching those games in Israel. I was staying up all night. I was like a nocturnal creature for two months of my fall semester because I loved the Red Sox so much. But there are kids out there now who are, you know, 10 years old who have never been to a baseball game. And they're not going to understand. Like, I wish they would kind of think about it in, in, like, the way that you described it, like, like the story that you just described, like I've heard so many similar versions of that from like 2004. Like when I, when I was in Afghanistan was that, that was the, the, um, the collapse at the end of the 2011 season. And, and for, for that, that was like kind of the crazy last week of the, uh, of the baseball season. And some baseball fans probably have like, like very exciting memories of that. And some it's probably pretty horrifying. And but like you hear you still to this day people talk about like the kind of emotional roller coaster of, of the end of that season and if you like imagine people like the stories people tell like compared to what you just described now it's like oh I, I i went to watch that game but i couldn't watch it because i was living in a blackout area like that's not the person that's going to be very committed to watching baseball 20 years from now well not only are they not going to be committed but you have to think that at a certain point when you're denied so many times, when you're hurt so many times, when you're turned away so many times, you have to think that eventually people aren't going to come back. They're not going to keep trying. You know, there's like all those inspirational quotes on, on Instagram and Pinterest of like, if it doesn't open, it's not your door. If it doesn't open, it's not your door. If MLB keeps (laughs) slamming the door on fans, they're going to go to a different door and that door is the NBA or even the NFL or, you know, soccer, even like there are only so many times that fan and and you see that with Red Sox fans because there are Red Sox fans who are so hurt right now. And they're like, I'm done. You know, like it's enough. You don't see the value in Mookie Betts. You don't see the value in Brock Holt who would have cost you like $4 million and was the captain of the Jimmy fund and did so much for this team and this city. Like they don't get it. And and meanwhile, they want people to pay more money to go to the ballpark to see worse players that they don't like. And it's like, yeah, okay, this isn't my door, you know? Yeah. If you look at it from a perspective of like what business operates this way and like whether it's like, like think about like Tampa right now where it's like what what business like blames their fans when they can't operate a successful it's like it's like a, our like you're not coming to the games it's our customer's fault like at, at at a basic level like no business operates that way but when you look at it kind of from the the lens of like a historical perspective of baseball it makes perfect sense of like this is what they've done and what they've always done and and kind of the world's moved to kind of a lot of the communication barriers are broken down and information's available in real time, but baseball's always had this like very like monopolistic mindset of like people wonder why they like people talk about like the marketing problems of baseball. Like they mark, they market baseball like Andrew Carnegie marketed still of like you 
have all control all the product and like if people want to buy it they have to go through you so like and you can be as much of a jerk as you want like like at the end of the day it is what it is and when you take that approach like are there going to be some people that no matter how much you piss them off they're going to always watch baseball because they love it so much yes but like that's not a good plan that is like you like as you described eventually you're going to test people's patience and peel off fans until it erodes and erodes and erodes and you're also going to have these these conversations about all the negative like the negativity around the game and and for each of the last three off seasons we've had the commissioner up there wondering why the conversation is negative and it's like like because you are driving the negativity like it's a, like a, you are the you should be an evangelist for baseball and instead you just piss people off i mean it's like you know someone punching you in the face and then being like why are you upset mm-hmm. cuz you punched me in the face <laughs> I think fans are finally not buying it because, you know, I, yes, I will probably be that crazy person. That's like watching baseball when I'm a hundred years old and it's like me and literally nobody else. But the thing that drives me so nuts is MLB is always trying to talk about, you know, acquiring new fans, enticing new fans. It's like, you don't even care about the fans you currently have. And it's proven by the fact that everything that you do in your misguided attempts to acquire these new fans hurts the fans that you currently have who have stuck with you through literally all of this. Funny you say that that because that's actually like, they would, they've come out and said that almost like verbatim themselves, like many times where when you look at kind of the comments about growing the game, Rob Manfred has talked at uh, numerous occasions about like, like our diehard fans are always going to watch. So we have them, but how do we attract the people that aren't watching now or the more casual fans? And that's where you get into some of these tweaks that, that I think in a lot of ways, like take, take your core fans for granted and drive them, drive them nuts. And, and it's like, look like, are you are you really going to get that like like at what cost are 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 you doing this like is it in, is it is it worth it and I don't I think it, I think when you have that attitude of like taking them for granted like it's like a, like it's easy to see the slippery slope of where like a lot of stuff goes wrong and one thing that I'm to your point about like the like the negativity and like I, I get that a lot myself obviously for like pointing out like a lot of these problems and and my response to that is always that it's not like I don't like hate baseball. It's quite the opposite. It's like, I care about it enough that like, I'm going to say that this is not okay. I don't want baseball to become this. And, and I, exactly. I want it, it to, sometimes like it needs to, like it, there needs to be a little bit of a bloodletting here in, in order to, to, to save the patient. And that um, there's, there's a tipping point though, that, that I've noticed this off season, I think where you've seen, it hasn't quite happened enough with the media. It's definitely happened to the fans. I think there's been a little bit of a breakthrough with the media, and hopefully that will continue. But I think finally you're seeing people are, are just not taking them at their word anymore. And I think that's going to eventually lead to some positive change where, I mean, I even saw with like the, like right before we started this conversation, there was a, a poll that came out of where like 14% of people had faith that MLB did a good report into the Astros investigation. And when you, so you have like, like on the one hand, you have the commissioner out there talking about he's fully transparent and had to grant immunity so we can get all the facts out there. And, and we owe it to our fans to tell them the full story. Well, only 14% of them believe you. Like, what does that say? You also owe it to your fans to not 
take them for granted. But like you said, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Things like the three batter minimum rule or, you know, the obsession with pace of play, those are things that upset existing fans, but they are not what's going to entice someone to become a fan of baseball. Because if they don't appreciate what is so special about baseball, they're not going to see what effect it has on the game. And it's not going to sway them either way. Like the three batter minimum rule is actually very problematic in terms of removing manager authority. You know, it removes manager authority. And I did a whole thread on like, you know, how much it actually could affect the game in terms of like, well, Manfred has stated that pace of play can be improved by implementing the three batter minimum. The thing with that is that if a pitcher comes into the game and he doesn't have his stuff, he is now stuck in the game for a minimum of three batters. And therefore he's actually drawing out the length of the game because ultimately the manager is still going to take them out and replace them with someone else. And that person is now coming in and has to fix an even bigger mess. And so ultimately you actually have made the game even longer. Well, think about it on this side of it too, of like, one of the things that like this is a good topic because it's it's kind of driven driven me nuts lately the three batter minimum one and and I think it's I've been on it for over a year I've been all over my Twitter it's insane (laughs) it's it's flown under the radar mostly because of bigger issues recently but like imagine like the scenario of like what if it like actually let's say you say it like works as planned and it affects like the manager's decisions the way they wanted to like do you really want a with pennant race game or a playoff game to to turn on the fact that you have uh your best reliever in the pen and not matching up against the best hitter because you're not allowed like not allowed to bring him in like that's not that is that really like a good thing that's then, exactly on, what on, I said last year about Kimbrel because I mean you saw Kimbrel did not have his stuff during the 2018 postseason, and I said imagine if Cora wasn't able to take out Kimbrel. That's a different kind of changing the outcome of a game because it's not about you know whether or not a guy can hit your stuff. It's not about whether or not you know a pitcher has it. It's about whether or not the guy has been in the game for the requisite amount of time for the pitcher to be able to be removed by the manager, and that's something that isn't even about skill. That's just about a rule that people don't even like. Yeah. And, and, and on a more general level, just look at the way that it was kind of introduced of like, there's like, there's been a ton of crazy rules that have been introduced and tested out in the Atlantic league. And like a lot, a lot of them were off the walls. And I think people sort of ignored it because it's, they're just weird and people are like, well, it, hopefully it won't actually come to fruition in a major league game. And so they, they sort of ignore them in this case. Like it wasn't even, these weren't even tested out anywhere before. So like, you don't know the second and third order effects or the unforeseen consequences of, of or un- unforeseen consequences that might manifest themselves in a game. And that's a pretty significant change to undertake without really knowing and not knowing the benefit, all those studies that I've seen have shown that the benefit is pretty minimal and isn't going to save that much time. And, and it, it kind of just gets down to this question of, of like, why are you doing this? Like, what is the point here? And then not, not only have they, what's like really crazy, and this gets back to like the theme of just like respecting your fans. They, there's been nobody out there 
on the major league baseball side, explaining out front in a clear and coherent manner. This is why we are doing this. This is what we think is going to happen. This is why it's important to do this. And, and if you're, because if you're it's not important. That, <laughs> and there's only but, so but, much but BS they can try and, you know, spin. Yeah, but they should, they should do that. And, but, but what's even more insane is not only do they not do that to the fans, they didn't even do that to the managers themselves. Like it, it was not long at the winter meetings in December, there were managers that were interviewed that were saying, yeah, we don't know, or we think this might not even happen. Like, think, like they're not talking to people. They, they're, this really strikes me as one of those things where it's like, we are doing this because we can and deal with it. Like if you don't like it tough. And they also, and the players don't like it either. I mean, Trevor Bauer has been very outspoken. I'm pretty, pretty sure he even called Manfred a fool. Um, yep. <laughs> but, but there have been players across the league who have been saying, you know, Didi Gregoria said it, um, a minor leaguer in the Royals organization. I retweeted him last night. He, he said, um, I speak for myself here and possibly some others out there, but I absolutely love baseball how it is. So please stop changing the game. Just let us go ball. You know, players, it's one thing if you don't care about the fans, like that sucks. I get it. Like you don't care. You sit around with a pile of money and we don't matter to you. But the actual players that you employ to play your game don't like it. And you don't even care that they don't like it. You've got players speaking out in ways that they never have before, just begging you to like, let them play baseball. And it's such a far cry from 2018 MLB being like, let the kids play. Like they're telling you to stop. They're begging you to stop. You have minor leaguers risking their future in the game by speaking out on Twitter saying, please just let us go play. We don't like these rule changes and you're still doing it. It's so toxic. I think, I think most players are in the same boat as the fans against MLB. I think it's become pretty clear, especially with the the Astros situation and everything that players around the league are just as furious and incredulous that MLB is just letting Astros players play baseball this year and acting as if it's business as usual. And then also saying that any player who, intentionally hurts an Astros player during a game will be punished. And it's like, really, you're going to punish them, but not the actual people who should have been punished, who they're mad at. And I think, I think there's a, there's been a building frustration where, where over the last couple of years, you've seen like the player side, like these guys are getting increasingly upset with this idea of like, they, they know how hard it is to succeed at that level. Like they don't want the shenanigans. And this was like far, like the Astros definitely went like further than everybody. I think to the point where you see like the level of shock and outrage is commensurate with that. But the, this was like a growing issue across the game and guys like want to know that like they can put in the work in the off season, that they've worked their, they worked their entire lives to hone their skills. And, and in these like key moments, like you, you like, is it going to come down to like, an algorithm that somebody that Jeff Lunau hired to like, that's going to be the deciding point of a, of a world series or a playoff race or, or not even like, that. Maybe it's just it's a guy, guy down to a trash can. Yeah. Like that, like, is that really what this is about? That was part three of my interview with Nick Francona. 
As always, you can find me on Twitter at GFSTARR1 and follow Locked On Red Sox at LO underscore Red Sox so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks again to my guest, Nick Francona. And as always, go Sox. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. 